Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we watched Sunset Boulevard. A screenwriter develops a dangerous relationship with a faded film star determined to make a triumphant return. Alright. This is an incredible movie. That's pretty good. Uh, I, I don't know about pretty good, Diana. This one's incredibly good. It's a good story. I understand why it's a classic. Again, same as Double Indemnity. Like, it's a solid movie. I I guess I don't feel like the performances live up to the hype of the movie, maybe. Maybe that's where I'm kind of like, yeah, it's all right. I think they do. Okay. I have seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. I watched, I can't remember when I watched it. First of all, I, I think the only movies I'd seen about Hollywood up to this point were generally positive. Mm-hmm. We're just about, you know, the stardom and the Hollywoodness of it all. And then you watch this movie and it is so bitter. <laughs> I mean, just a thorough and complete takedown of everything that Hollywood stands for. Mm-hmm. And I think the only thing that's changed from then until now is that then it was very much run by like a single man and political figure. Mm-hmm. versus now where it's run by a corporation. Hmm. But that's literally the only difference. Uh, okay. Hollywood still chews people up and spits them out frequently. Oh, absolutely. And some of it is also, I have to admit, an appreciation from the trivia and the connections here. But even so, I think there's something stunning in the performances because it's just so over the top from our main lead actress and everyone else around her, including some of her own like old co-stars are like, holy crap, (laughs) she's lost it. Hmm. The story is great enough, but I don't know. Everything clicks for me on this movie. I I think it's top notch. Okay. I guess we'll have to talk about that when we get to cast, Mm because I'm curious to figure out what it is exactly that you're not buying from the performances being given. Not that I'm not buying. I just don't think they're... I'm not seeing anything like new or special. Well, fair, but I don't think it needs to be mm-hmm. for this story. I, I don't disagree, but I, I believe that for me, the hype about this movie, that was the part that I was like, oh, okay. Oh, interesting. No, I never thought about it that way. I always thought of it more of just like the entire package as a whole is just an incredible take on Hollywood mm. and movie making. <laughs> You know, uh, the industry loves, you know, the self-referential crap. But do they love a self-referential movie that does a brutal takedown of everyone involved in it? Most of the time, yes. Let's let's be very clear. They love that shit. If it's well done, yes. Oh, yeah. No, they eat that shit up like crazy. Absolutely. All right. Well, the budget for this movie was $1,750,000. That equates to $21,500,000 today. So this is a solid, dramatic budget. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like top end for an Oscar contender in a given year. It made $5 million, roughly $61,500,000. It also did quite well. At its opening, it set an all-time non-holiday house record at Radio City Music Hall. It made $166,000 which is almost $2 million in today's money. Cool. So the only thing it didn't beat was the Rockettes. Okay. Which 
very different forms of entertainment we have here. And if you want a uh, a little bit of information on how influential this movie is, because holy shit, has this movie probably more than any other of Billy Wilder's inspired so much lore and references and study like this is from the from the critical standpoint his masterpiece from how it's regarded now mm-hmm. i'm not saying that it necessarily is in my view it just the amount of credits and lauding and people who've been inspired by this movie goes on and on and on mm-hmm. the national film registry has named this one of its 25 landmark films in movies AFI has listed it as the number 16 film of all time. The inaugural cover of Cahiers du Cinéma, a French film magazine that inspired and hired many of the French New Wave directors to write for it, featured the image of Norma and Joe in Norma's screening room for its first cover. And it is also the inspiration for Metallica's 1997 song, The Memory Remains. So it's a big fucking deal. Mm Mm-hmm. Despite Paramount being the subject of this film, they were thrilled for the free publicity it gave them. Oh, sure. They did not ask for any disguise or reframing of the studio. And in fact, one of the hottest tickets on the lot was while they were filming this to watch the Daily Rushes coming out. Mm. Everybody on Paramount knew about this movie and wanted to see what was going on. Yeah. And Paramount was just like, cool, give it to us. During the first industry screening, Paramount execs invited a number of silent film stars to come and watch it. At the end, they all stood and cheered after Gloria Swanson's return to film. Hmm. Afterward, Barbara Stanwyck, who we talked about for Double Indemnity, knelt and kissed Swanson's skirt hem. Because Gloria Swanson's a big fucking deal. Mm -hmm. She really wanted to know uh, the reaction of fellow star Mary Pickford, who is also a big deal. Mm-hmm. She had left, and they told her, quote, she can't show herself, Gloria. She's too overcome. We all are, unquote. Yeah. It was a huge thing. This is, Billy Wilder has this weird extra track of, like, plucking actors out of obscurity. And, yeah. like, we're going to rekindle everything about you because you're an amazing actor and it doesn't hurt that he has a story built in for that premise here but this was a huge deal for that generation of movie stars because so many of them were just left by the wayside Mm -hmm. mary pickford a little bit different she actually decided to kind of go exile herself and do her own thing but they all had experienced this from the movie studios and if we thought like the 1950s were bad the 1920s were garbage for movie stars. Oh, yeah. Louis B. Mayer apparently found this movie incredibly offensive. I didn't find the details on why, but uh, knowing what he did to Judy Garland, mm-hmm. I don't doubt it because it just exposes everything horrible about what the studio bosses were willing to do. Mm-hmm. And finally, if all of this influence wasn't enough, there is a musical version created by Andrew Lloyd Webber that opened in 1993 in London. It ran 1,529 performances. That's a lot. Yeah. Patti LuPone appeared as Norma in the original production in London. At that production, Billy Wilder attended, because he was still alive, and he was impressed. Quote, the best thing they did was leave the script alone, unquote. Hmm. And of Patti LuPone, quote, she's a star from the moment she walks on stage, unquote, which is very fucking true. (laughs) Then it opened on Broadway in 1994. It ran 977 performances. It also did real well. 
Uh, won the 1995 Tony Awards for Best Musical, Book, and Score, and appearing as Norma Desmond on Broadway, won Glenn Close. Oh, oh wow. Oh, 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 what a powerhouse performance that is. Yeah. They have poked around about this being made a movie. They've been on and off talking about it for many years, and Glenn keeps saying every time, we're getting closer, we're getting closer. So uh, I wouldn't be shocked in the next few years to potentially see the musical adaptation of this story. That's cool. And by all accounts, a pretty good musical, which is interesting for Andrew Lloyd Webber. But, you know. All right, let's get to our writing. And first off, we've got Mr. Billy Wilder. I don't have to give you any of these credits. It's his series. He's the big guy here. But working with him is Charles Brackett. Now, Charles Brackett was, other than Double Indemnity, where they brought in Raymond Chandler as a ringer, Wilder's collaborator all through his early career. Okay. So before this, he wrote Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, That Certain Age, Nunochka, Midnight, What a Life, Arise My Love, French Without Tears, Ball of Fire, Hold Back the Dawn, The Major and the Minor, Five Grace to Cairo, The Lost Weekend, The Bishop's Wife, A Foreign Affair, and The Emperor Waltz. All of those movies were with Billy. Okay. After this, he wrote Niagara, Titanic from 1953, and 1959's Journey to the Center of the Earth. Those were not with Billy. Mm-hmm. And that gets us into some of the trivia here. I will say Charles Brackett was also a producer on many of these films, but also was the lead producer on The King and I and State Fair, which are two. The King and I, a huge film, and State Fair, a pretty sizable musical. So mm-hmm. he he produced just as well as he wrote. What do we think of the writing of this movie? I think it's pretty good. I mean, I, I like the story. I wish the William Holden character had a little more agency. Because there's a there's a point where he's just kind of resigned to it. And it's just like, you could easily get out of this. You just don't want to. But see, I love that. That's what I love. Well, I, because we don't see that in movies from the 1950s and 40s. No, but it it's kind of like he wants to have his cake and eat it too. Which like, I get. But it's like, on the one hand, he's acting like he's miserable. But he doesn't actually want to leave. Well, he's not a good guy. No. He's a terrible person. Yeah, I guess I feel like that's what kind of makes it a little more complicated. And I don't I don't love that. Is it throwing you that it's William Holden? No. Oh, okay. Um, no, I I mean, I love that twist because he thinks he's just gonna get one over on this woman, but she is so driven and dedicated to this vision, and she is willing to put her claws into anything that might stop it from going forward. And then she also falls in love with him. Yeah, no, I get all that. Like, I get the whole, like, oh, this might be a sweet gig, you know, like, I hang out with this super rich lady, I get all my shit taken care of, and I might actually have an in, like, to get more work done. And then it's just, he becomes a freeloader. And then he's essentially her prisoner, but like he doesn't, he's not even trying. So it's like, I know he's not so much supposed to be a sympathetic character, but he's our way into this woman's world and they don't really do anything with him. You know, here's what I will admit. They don't do a great job of showing the very real desperation that he should have when he gets to this place. Because he's a con man, but also it's like he's about to lose fucking everything, including the car, which is a huge deal because he lives in Los Angeles. There's no way to do anything without that car. It's played as a sad sack, and Mm -hmm. it should be a lot more desperate for him. 
I, I think he, he should definitely be a little more twisty mustache when he meets her. Like, aside from the, like, you're nuts. But, like, also, this could work to my advantage. Because you're also really entertaining. Like, where's the part of the story where he's like, I'm going to write about you. Because <laughs> you nuts. Like, it, it's a, like it's a missed opportunity. I don't know. Huh. I think where you're coming from, it seems like you want him to be the main character. When Billy and Charles seem to think Norma's the main character. They do. And I'm fine with that because in Norma's world, she's the main character. Everyone in Norma's life, she's the main character. I'm fine with all that. But our way into this woman's life is through Joe. There's not enough Salieri in this movie. They don't have anything happen to Joe. And even if at the end of the film, nothing's changed for Joe, he's still out on his ass and he has no money. That's fine. That would make a lot of sense. But he's been on this adventure. He's been on, he's, he's traveled through this woman's world and look at what's happened. What has he witnessed? And you can make it all about that and you, you don't lose anything. But they didn't mm. add anything. His character is a waste and he's just sad. And then we have this other chick who's actually interested in him. And I would have actually loved if she had kind of turned almost villainous and like she can call him on it. And then she takes his story that he could have written about this woman. Like say, he, like, I'm going to write it. I'm going to write it. And he just never does. So she writes it. And then she's the one who gets the big break. Blah, 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 blah. So like you lost the girl. You lost your meal ticket and you're out on your ass. That's how li- that's how Sunset Boulevard ends for you, dude. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I, <laughs> when when David makes that noise, like fuck, you have a point. Fuck. No, you have an incredibly good point. I I can't I can't fault that. I will say I love 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 the thing with the butler <laughs> who ha- who turns out to have been a previous director and her one of her former husbands. That is just a layer that I was not expecting at all. And I was like, that adds so much to their interactions. I love it. Oh, yeah. Love, love, loved that. Feeding our lies and more lies. Getting herself ready for a picture. What happens when she finds out? She never will. That is my job. And it has been for a long time. You must understand, I discovered her when she was 16. I made her a star, and I cannot let her be destroyed. You made her a star? Yes. I directed all her early films. There were three young directors who showed promise in those days. T.W. Griffith, Cecil B. DeMille, and Max von Meiling. And she's turned you into a servant. It was I who asked to come back, humiliating as it may seem. I could have continued my career. Only I found everything unendurable after she had left me. You see, I was her first husband. Here's where I think the messiness comes from. I don't think they do a good job of figuring out whether they want Joe or Norma to be the main character. And if Joe's not going to be the main character, then he needs to be a cipher. Up until the point at the very end where he realizes, wait a fucking minute, I'm my own person. Yeah. <laughs> and and it should be a lot more of him just slowly 
peeling away all of this stuff and and him not thinking that this very over the top over dramatic woman could actually get under his skin until she finally is mm-hmm. i think that does read to an extent but also i think 2022 viewer doesn't necessarily get enough of that nuance that we would really like to see here mm-hmm. versus 1950 viewer was probably like holy fucking shit what is going on <laughs> I think they could have gone further, and I think they could have drawn a clear distinction for sure. Mm-hmm. But there's also a level of, you know, if they went any deeper or creepier with it, uh, there's a good chance they can't get this movie made <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, they're already riding a real fine line on this movie with the subject matter as it is. To me, that's the that's probably your biggest hole is is who's going to actually be the star here. Mm hmm. And then if she's going to be the star, he needs to be Salieri. He, need, he needs to be that F. Murray Abraham just sitting back, sitting back, sitting back until finally it's gone too far and he has to take some sort of action. Mm-hmm. And by the time he takes action, it's way too fucking late. And then he gets motherfucking killed by Norma. Yeah. Who's lost it? Yeah, she's not. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing I do love about Joe is when he finally does make that turn, that last speech he gives where he, all he does is just name all the weird shit in the house. Mm-hmm. And then just doesn't even pretend. He's like, I'm a terrible person. What do you want from me? Mm. And and shoves her because he's like, well, I've lost everything. I might as well go for broke. Yeah. And also, I am going to save you because if I pull you into this twisted web, you're going to get hurt too. That can make him a more likable character. And I, I'm an, an, uh, a quote unquote hero. And I don't need him to be that. I don't think it makes him a hero, but well, I think it I think it just adds this layer to him that's fascinating. I think it tries to redeem him and I honestly don't need to redeem him. He can be a dirtbag and stay a dirtbag. That's fine. But like you've gone on a journey, so like let's make the journey interesting and then at the end the question can be, so what are you going to do about it? Like how did like what what's next for you? I still like the end, but I wish it was less ambiguous whether he was like trying to save this younger writer. I wish it was way more concrete of, I've gone too far with this woman. Mm-hmm. I'm going with her. I'm sticking with Norma. And then just brutally tearing down this other girl. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what it should have been, to be perfectly honest. And I think that's where they were leaning. But I just, I, I don't think they pulled, they, they pulled their punch just a little bit. And that very likely could have been a studio like, well, you have to make him at least likable. He's a movie star. Mm-hmm. But he shouldn't. He shouldn't be. There are things I would change. However, the thing I do have to say is just the absolute level of in-references and connections and connections that play into the plot of how movies are being made at the time. Incredible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like movies get made about making movies all the time. Very rarely. Do movies get it on the fucking nose how it's being done from a corporate studio level to the director in the chair? Mm -hmm. And Billy was like, we're going to show it warts and all every single bit of that, which I'm like, that that takes guts in 1950. Mm -hmm. There's a note I have that they actually had to submit the, the script in piecemeal to the code office because they were afraid it would be rejected. Oh, <laughs> so they okay. would only give it scenes at a time. <laughs> That's funny. 
and like I said, it's just because they they were like, we don't know how they're going to react. <laughs> it is groundbreaking. It just today, there's a little bit of nuance and level that I think I wish they could have gone for more. But I take your point. It's a good point. <laughs> uh, well, this would be Wilder and Brackett's final collaboration after 17 screenplays working together. The two actually almost came to physical blows over the Norma's comeback montage where she is like having her face stretched and doing all sorts of mm -hmm. stuff. Brackett thought it, the sequence was cruel in its imagining of her age, ravaging her. Wilder insisted that they needed it to show how Norma needed to retain her youth. Mm -hmm. And honestly, Billy's right. Yeah. It's a really pivotal scene. It's huge, especially for the fact that you know she's doing all this and there's not a chance in hell any of it's going to matter because this is, she is already in her own world, but this is what drives her to the breaking point. Yeah. So it's so crucial. Wilder won the argument, but after this and after the fight of it, Billy Wilder said, I'll never make another movie with Brackett again. And true to his word, they never did work together again. Hmm. He was done. Billy Wilder is a man of principle. If he says something's happening, it ain't ever happening again. Yeah, that is that does seem to be true. <laughs> it seems inconsequential, but he's just like, if I've made up my mind, that's it. Mm -hmm. We're done. And this, like I said, this was 17 screenplays. They'd work all through the mid 30s together. They had several Academy Award nominations under their belt. It was a huge fucking partnership. Yeah. Finally, we have a gentleman named D.M. Marshman Jr. who also worked on this film. Mm -hmm. He actually only wrote on two films after this, some B-list movies, but that was because he was actually a journalist. Okay. He had written a piece critical of Brackett and Wilder's movie, The Emperor Waltz, and they thought it was such a good critique, they hired him to help tighten up Sunset Boulevard. Mm. He would okay. be the mediator between their ideas, which I think is pretty interesting. Yeah. As we said with the production code, they submitted the script in pieces a few pages at a time, but they were also terrified of Hollywood reacting terribly to the portrait of it, which they didn't, which is wild. But they, I mean, they were making a very critical movie about Hollywood. So the, the film wasn't named Sunset Boulevard while filming. It was titled A Can of Beans. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Norma is modeled after several leading actresses of the time who dealt with personal struggles and mental illness. Mary Pickford, as we mentioned, had gone into seclusion. She left for the public. Um, mm -hmm. She really didn't have mental illness issues, but I know that she went off to help start United Artists with Charlie Chaplin and then created her own like artists colony thing. So she was like, fucking done with Hollywood. I'm going to go do my own thing. Hmm. Mae Murray and Clara Bow had well-documented struggles with mental illness as actresses. And Norma's name is a combo of a silent movie star, Norma Talmadge, and William Desmond Taylor, a silent movie director. He was romantically involved with Talmadge and was shot and killed on February 1st, 1922, but no suspect was ever identified. It was, at that time, one of the greatest Hollywood scandals. Hmm. And a perfect little nod. As you're going to see, that's going to come up a lot in this fucking movie. Several stars and producers refused to allow Billy Wilder to use their name, including Daryl F. Zanuck, Olivia de Havilland, Tyrone Power, and Samuel Goldwyn. Billy Wilder, being Billy Wilder, used Zanuck and Power's names anyway. <laughs> In that scene where Joe is pitching his script. Mm. Funny enough, Greta Garbo gave her permission. Oh, 
Okay. But she regretted it later, offended that Wilder had used her name in a past tense context. I mean, it's accurate. Old Hollywood being bitchy as hell. Norma's obsession with writing a script based on Salome may have been influenced by the eccentric actress Valeska Surratt, who played vamp roles from 1915 to 1917. After this, she was supposedly obsessed with the idea that she was the second coming of the Virgin Mary and commissioned the U.S. Reform Baha'i movement to write a story based on Mary Magdalene's life. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Weird shit happened in Hollywood. Wow. But the parallels are very key because she submitted that script to Cecil B. DeMille, who sent it back. Surratt then filed a million-dollar plagiarism suit against DeMille when he made The King of Kings in 1929. Mm -hmm. They settled out of court in 1930. I would not put it past Cecil B. DeMille to have seen the script be like, this shit is terrible, but we should make a movie about Jesus. Yeah. And then stealing crap from it and sending it back to her. Um, I like it. (laughs) Oh. I love the trivia on these movies. I'm going to say it Mm -hmm. many times. When Joe mentions that they'll love it in Pomona, there is a double meaning to that line. Obviously, it's on its face. It's intended to represent that any American town might like a movie. Sure. However, Pomona was one of three Inland Empire towns Hollywood used to test films for preview audiences. They liked those cities because they were stops along the way to Palm Springs, so after they did test screenings, they could go to go like day spa and sit at the pool and then talk about the movies. Hmm. Kind of smart. Yeah. I do love the level of just Hollywood in lingo that's in the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't take away from your experience of watching the movie. Yeah. But if you know, it just adds 15 layers. Sure. Yeah. The script also contains two of the top 100 movie quotes of all time, according to AFI. Mm. Obviously, we know the line, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up, voted number seven. It's often misquoted as, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Yeah. Sneaking in at number 24, however, is, I am big. It's the pictures that got small. You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh I like that. Uh, Norma's got one-liners for days. She does. It's great. All right, that leads us to our director, and Mm -hmm. it is Billy. Billy! What do we think of Billy Wilder's directing of this movie? Uh, I like it, especially with Norma. She's so interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, some of that's Gloria Swanson, but he, there's so many shots where she's center completely. Oh, yeah. And they didn't do a ton of, like, tracking shots back then because it was really complicated to do. But there are a couple moments where things are moving and it's to keep her in the center. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I noticed that and I liked it. It makes sense, of course. I also like that Max is oftentimes in like a shadow. Always. And I loved that too. And like it's really subtle, but it's there. Well, and he's always in a shadow, and then you're waiting for him to like murder this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's not what he's in the shadows for. <laughs> no. First of all, there's the legendary shot on the staircase. Yes. Which is incredible. <laughs> yeah. But I think the sneaky one and the reason why it's on that magazine cover is the the screening room. 
the living mm. room sequence where she stands up and the smoke from the cigarette flies into the projector light and you're just like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, some of it is Gloria Swanson, but it's I think what's fascinating is how much of a film noir this movie starts off being mm-hmm. and slowly devolves into this weird Hollywood dark fantasy thing. Like over the course of the movie, Billy gets more grandiose and more, I, I don't know, romantic with his shot selections. Mm-hmm. Like it just it it continues to evolve throughout the film. And the only time where it drops is when Joe goes to the set to go talk about this other script. Yeah. And they're just walking around the lot and all the pretense gets dropped. But the second he walks back in that house, it is fucking bananas. The kinds of shots he's doing. And it's because he's in this weird, twisted woman's head. (laughs) Um, It's like the camera is always in the perspective of how Norma sees the world. Oh yeah, which is just a brilliant way, and it and it again plays to that whole thing of Billy as a director is always going to make the choice that fits the movie, mm-hmm. and in this, because of that, he then just gets these incredible grand moments of filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, for me as a person, I can overlook a lot of quibbles when you give me some of those shots because I'm like, yeah, I don't fucking care about any of the rest of it. Oh my god, this is amazing. <laughs> I'm willing to forgive a lot when you give me something like the staircase sequence at the end of the movie. Uh, All right. Well, Billy started filming with only 61 pages of finished script. Mm -hmm. They didn't have it done. So they had to shoot in chronological order. This was very odd for Gloria Swanson, but she actually said that it helped her in developing her character and the slow descent into this darkness and madness that she has. Mm. Which I think is kind of cool. It's interesting that... Nobody wanted it that way, but it worked out pretty well for them. Mm -hmm. All of Norma Desmond's starlet photos are actual publicity shots for Gloria Swanson in her heyday in movies. Mm -hmm. They went ultra realistic on that front. Nowadays, we CGI it and it looks so terrible. It really looks bad. But they, again, she was such a huge star. They had no issues, Mm -hmm. Which helps, and like it, it points to Wilder knew, regardless, I have to cast a huge deal actress from that day. Yeah. Because it's the only way this movie will work. Yeah, you have to buy, like have somebody who you could buy yeah. as being in this position. And we'll, we'll get to why Gloria was probably the best choice. Because the other thing is, it has to be somebody who could be in this position, but wouldn't be offended by the implications of the role. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that too. Oh. Um, <laughs> Wilder did love his pranks. When Joe and Betty kiss for the first time, Wilder got his shot very quickly and then just let them kiss for several minutes without yelling cut. It was not Billy Wilder, but William Holden's wife, Artis, who yelled cut. Okay, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, inappropriate, but funny. Down the road, we will get into why uh, William and Artis had their own set of issues. I love William Holden, but he was kind of a dirtbag, y'all. He was a rascal. To get the shot of Joe face down in the pool, Wilder wanted to get a shot from below with the body and the police. Mm. However, there is no way to shoot through water and get a clear picture from above. So you you could get the shot of the body, but you can't see the police clearly through the water. Mm -hmm. So John Meehan, his art director, experimented. 
until he got the idea to shoot through a mirror at the bottom of the tank. At just the right angle, the camera filmed the reflected image of the body without having to go underwater, and they could see the police officers from up above. Hmm. However, that shot was not the original opening to the film. Okay. Originally, it started at the L.A. County morgue, and Billy described it as the best scene he ever shot. Oh, wow. Joe gets wheeled into the morgue with three dozen corpses, and through voices, they begin to swap stories about how they get killed. Oh, wow. Which is an awesome, awesome idea, right? I like that's an amazing concept. The problem was test audiences laughed all the way through it because they thought it was so silly. And some of it was probably, what the fuck? I mean, yes, that's not right for this movie at all. No. But for a movie, it's awesome. I know. The studio wouldn't accept it because they were like, we can't put this, we can't put a scene that's going to get this many laughs in a movie that's this supposed to be a a dark drama. Mm Mm-hmm. They actually had to delay the film six months to reshoot that beginning sequence. Oh, wow. As with many old movies, we almost lost this movie to time and Mm. bad film storage. Uh, The original negatives disappeared, and the only extant film version were decayed positives, nitrates from 1952. The Mm. remaining film was scanned at high resolution for a 2002 reissue and then a 4K HD scan in 2008 for Blu-ray. Everybody needs to support film preservation. And as we've seen recently with media, if you like a movie like this, you need to buy a physical copy Mm -hmm. because at this point they are willing to just throw it away. This would be the last major film made on nitrate stock. Kodak discontinued it in 1953 and it was widely shunned by many in the industry before that. And we have potentially a second director. In the Paramount Collection at the Academy Library, Doan Harrison is listed as co-director of the film. Credits-wise, and and publicly, he was the supervising editor. Now, Wilder stated that the credit of co-director should not be considered level with his work as director of the film, but that Doan Harrison was a huge collaborator with him on his movies. He would offer notes and input on set, to create, quote, elegant visuals and efficient production schedules. So Harrison got public credit as an associate producer on many of his films and worked in the editorial department on a lot of them. I assume he supervised that. But it's really interesting. Billy's like, this guy didn't like have the full vision, but he was one of my most trusted collaborators on my movies, mm-hmm. which I think is pretty cool. There's a there's, Here's one thing I'll say about Billy. Billy gives credit where credit's due. Mm-hmm. He might hate you, but also like with Raymond Chandler, he didn't like Raymond's ideas and then they did it and was like, fuck it. He's right. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> like he'll give credit where, where it's deserved. And that leads us to our cast. First up, as Joe Gillis, we have William Holden. He is a fave of this show. We have talked about him for Network and Bridge on the River Kwai. And guess what? We are going to have a little mini trilogy within a series because William Holden will be in our next three films. Of course he is. I didn't plan this. I didn't know that was going to happen, but holy shit. There he is. What do we think of William Holden in this movie? I, I like William Holden. I don't have a problem with William Holden. 
I had a weird time watching him a little bit because I kept kept thinking of because it was around this time that he was on I Love Lucy mm. or, like, or like right after because like he he was the big deal. And so, you know, well, it would have been a little bit after this. Yeah. I, like I knew it had to be after this, but like he looked the same. And when I tell you the who could have been better as we get into this, there's uh-huh. a saga leading up to Holden getting cast because he was probably lowest on the mm-hmm. picking choice. I mean, I love him as an actor. He really is incredible. Anytime I watch him, I love what he's doing. I do agree that some of the issues that we have with the script don't necessarily play into the roguish charm of William Holden. Yeah. As much as some of the darker things. I actually think there's a couple of who could have been betters that Mm -hmm. may have worked better for this movie. Okay. And that's not a slight on William Holden, who I think does a great job. But I feel like in a weirdly tiny, subtle way, he almost twists the script in a direction that maybe throws it off balance. And then again, he's so fucking good, I don't care. Yeah, I mean, he's he's fine. Yeah. I mean, he really is. But yeah, like with the script stuff, like it is hard to know how much is script, how much is him. Because he he does like to be kind of like a scamp. That's what he's so good at. He's that or he's like in network. He's tired. <laughs> Tired and bitter, yeah. Yeah, which is also like a lane that he could he could have been in for this, but yeah, it's it's a little weird. I don't know. It, it is it is a slightly odd fit, and this is a comeback movie for him. And it's probably like to to say it about a movie like this is incredible, but he's like the weak part of, and, and as a weak part, he is so incredibly strong that I feel weird even saying it. Like, but if I got if I have to nitpick, I'm like, okay, that's where the issue is. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree. Let's talk about who could have been better. Okay, because there were people not only cast in this role beforehand, Mm -hmm. but then some other stuff. First of all, we have Montgomery Clift. Okay, who that's the kind of guy Montgomery Clift plays desperate. Yeah, that's his whole career. I mean, yes, and like that sort of dark brooding. What the hell is behind this guy's head? <laughs> sure. I think he's a perfect choice. He was under contract when two weeks before filming, he broke contract and said he wouldn't do the movie. Mm. And that is because at the time he was having an affair with a middle-aged wealthy actress, Libby Holman. Oh. And both she and Montgomery Clift were afraid of the press prying into their relationship because of the nature of the film. Oh, yeah. So... He sort of scooted on away. I mean, I'd love to see it. That's the kind of guy who I'm like, yes, pair that desperation with Norma's wildness. What an explosive combo. Yeah. And and it may have played a little bit better than some of the sort of roguish scampiness that William Holden brings. You just like saying rogue scamp. That's who I mean. Am I wrong, though? Am I wrong? But you're not that right. William Holden would have been Han Solo if we were born in 1954, okay? Like, come on, come on. Then, Billy wanted to get Fred McMurray. Okay. And we know how we like Fred McMurray in an off-type role. Yeah. But he did not want to play a gigolo. He did not want to play a guy looking to be with a woman for money. So he turned it down. Then, Marlon Brando. Oh, God. Now, this is before Marlon had been in anything big. This is before Streetcar in 1951. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was just this incredible up and coming theater star 
that everybody's like, oh, my God, he's incredible. He's amazing. But nobody'd seen him in anything. Yeah, this would have been good for him, because I think if this role had been a little bit younger, it could have it could have done well. I think Marlon would have knocked this out of the park. I think he could have. I hate him, but yeah, he's a garbage human. But The studio just was like, he's too unknown. We have to have somebody who's a known quantity. Then Gene Kelly. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I mean, we would have gotten a dance ballet out of it, but. (laughs) No, we would have gotten like a quick at the party at the New Year's party. He would have done a dance scene. Yeah. But not in a like super flashy way because Billy wouldn't have allowed that. That's the thing. Billy Billy goes straight on the script, but like I could have seen him doing a little dance scene and then just going over to to the younger writer and and then getting into that conversation. MGM refused to lease him. And as far as I could tell, he was pissed. Like he wanted to do it. Well, also, if they were going to do this as a straight film and not add singing or dancing elements, that could have been a real game changer for Gene Kelly. Not that he needed it, but it could have been like, oh, here's he can do this. And it, it wouldn't have been bad for him. But you know what he did instead? He made a terrible movie with one of the best dance sequences of all time that we talked yeah, about. Yeah, American episode, Paris. So. <laughs> it's fucking gorgeous. It's gorgeous, and it's also bad. Fucking gorgeous. <laughs> all right. And that finally, finally led them to William Holden, who did not impress Billy Wilder. He had been in a late 30s movie called Golden Boy, and that had like made him a bit of a star it got him some name recognition and then he just made a ton of bullshit in the 1940s and a big contributing factor was his alcoholism which lasted his entire life but he couldn't really work however this performance was such a big fucking deal Mm -hmm. and it got him such recognition that this spurred him into full-on movie stardom so he made a movie was on the brink of being a star and then just fucked around for a decade and Wilder wasn't that impressed but then he came in and like I said we're gonna discuss him two more times Billy figured out some magic with him (laughs) Billy figured out this guy's got something (laughs) so we get for better or for worse William Holden again I think in a perfect world Montgomery Clift is probably playing this role let's be honest regardless we do get the incredible the impeccable Gloria Swanson playing Norma Desmond. I am not going to talk about her credits right away. I want to talk about her performance, and then we will get into like the wild, interesting career and life she led. Mm. <laughs> what do we think of Gloria Swanson in this movie? Oh, she's fabulous. Amazing. She's, she's, I mean, she makes the movie. She is so good <laughs> mm-hmm. at being believable in her absolute insanity. Oh, yeah. At no point, do I feel like she is being dramatic to the point where it feels like she's playing a role? This feels like an aging starlet who is lost in her own fantasy world that she can still be in, that that she can still hold this role and mm-hmm. be this person in these movies. Like she just, she really thinks that she still has what it takes. Well, it's like she's been like in the suspended animation where she she's not aware of what, of what's been happening around her like i'm just at home like waiting to go back to the studio like it'll just like yeah like nothing's happened she she left that last movie with the mill and then 20 years passed 
and it's like nothing ever happened. And it is fascinating because we know for a fact people would meet her and be like, oh my God, she's going to be like Norma. And she was apparently just like a really chill, down to earth, a little bit spiritual person, but like, just like, hey, what's going on? And it's like, you played Norma Desmond? <laughs> but that just speaks to the talent that she had. Yeah. This is a pure performance. And because of that, it's all the more incredible. You put her up against any of those other actors that we named, mm-hmm. many of whom are powerhouse realistic actors. She would have knocked it out of the park against any of them. Oh, yeah. Because she both immaculately understood the position of that character while having enough distance from it to be this character and not Gloria Swanson. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, there will be some who could have been betters, but she was probably the perfect choice because she wasn't that person. She was like, well, I had my career. I'm good. I'm just going to do my thing now. Oh, you want me to do this? Oh, wow. What a script. And this opportunity just came to her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then just her face. Her face is incredible. (laughs) And again, any silent film star would have given you that same level of of face, but just what she could do with her body and her face and to manipulate it because she had done it throughout her entire acting career and nobody else in the movie had that capability because they hadn't had to do it like her. I mean, it is truly unsettling to watch her come up into that close-up at the end of the movie and it's because she knows exactly what she's going to (laughs) do. That whole sequence is just like, When's it going to stop? When's someone going to be like, no, this, like when when's it going to like escalate to like like when the, like they put the cuffs on her? Like when's it going to happen? And you just see and it's so well done between her and Wilder that she is fully breaking. Yeah. Like and as she's becoming this person and everybody's just watching because they're mesmerized by this. This is fascinating to see. And some of it is just the other actors. I mean, again, some of it's the other actors. Some of it's the crew. Like, this is they know this is a Hollywood legend. Mm -hmm. This is royalty in front of them. And I'm sure everybody, just like in that scene, off screen was doing the exact same fucking thing. Pin drop, no sound anywhere, just watching this woman work. Mm -hmm. Like, it's that level of good. (laughs) That's why you have to see the movie. Like, I don't care about anybody else. You have to see it in a big part because of her, because what she brings to it. Mm -hmm. And it's why, like, for the musical, you see such huge names to play this role. You've got to have big personality if you're going to fill Gloria fucking Swanson shoes. Mm -hmm. Well, Gloria Swanson is probably the original Hollywood starlet. Mm, Okay. She also was one of Cecil B. DeMille's actresses. Oh, okay. So the tie is very, very deliberate. She started her career in 1914. She was nominated for Oscars for 1928's Sadie Thompson and 1929's The Trespasser, and then only appeared in a handful of films after 1934. She was married six times, once to the owner of the Brown Derby, once to a French marquee. And she also counted Joseph P. Kennedy, the Daddy Kennedy, as one of her many lovers. This was really her last major film role. She appeared in some smaller roles and some TV appearances, but by the 1950s, she had mostly decided to retire. And when Norma states, without me, there wouldn't be any Paramount studio, that could have been very true at one point for Gloria Swanson. 
She was the studio's top star for six straight years. Cool. Again, really only one person to pull this off. Gloria Swanson had accepted the fact that movies had left her behind. So she worked on radio and TV in New York. She was just like, you know, I'm just going to go do some other stuff and that's fine. And then she got this offer and she was absolutely intrigued. I'm sure the script didn't hurt. Mm. However, Wilder requested a screen test. And she almost turned it down because what an insult. Yeah. And I understand. I also understand why Billy was like, I need to see it. I just need to make sure. Yeah, I get that. You got two people with very valid arguments. <laughs> but uh, Gloria Swanson's friend, director George Kukor, who is a, also a big fucking deal, he said, quote, if they want you to do 10 screen tests, do 10 screen tests. And if you don't, I will personally shoot you, unquote. <laughs> you know, he's just a wee bit dramatic. <laughs> she decided he had a point and she screen tested. <laughs> That's one of those like 30s cigar chomping quotes that's just like, clearly they were friends. Clearly he could get away with saying that to her. That's Mm -hmm. just fucking funny. (laughs) Oh, it is. Woo. Frustratingly, the film did not revitalize her career. Instead, almost every studio wanted her to be a watered down Norma Desmond. Mm -hmm. And she was like, no, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. I played Norma Desmond. In fact, per her daughter, she stayed in character throughout filming, speaking like Norma upon arriving home every day. I mean, I get it. It's a huge moment for her. (laughs) But on the final day of shooting, Swanson drove back to the house she shared with her mother and daughter and announced, there are only three of us in the house now, indicating that Norma had departed. (laughs) Cute. To film her final scene... Gloria Swanson stayed barefoot. She was terrified of tripping in heels down those stairs. And she was staring deeply into the camera. So she was Mm -hmm. like, I won't be able to pay attention to shit. I have to feel my way down. That's fair. Upon filming the final scene, she burst into tears and everyone on set applauded. Oh, yeah. So you talk about like seeing what she's doing and it's like she's putting everything into that moment. Yeah. I mean, pouring everything. Yeah, you can tell. And despite it not being the final the final sequence of filming, Wilder stopped everything and threw a rap party right then and there. Because he was like, this is huge. This is a huge fucking moment. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. We're going to stop. We're going to celebrate because we got the shot. <laughs> so I, it sounds like like even even despite that one little Rocky moment, there are no stories of any tension between Wilder and Swanson. It sounds like they they clearly both understood what they were doing and had a mutual respect. Like, there's no stories whatsoever. They're just like, we know what we're doing. We're good. Uh, Swanson also got to embark on a three-month tour of 36 cities per promotion, being paid $1,000 a week. So she she got her fair share of salary on this movie. I saw, like, she made 50000 which was, like, close to 500000 or something like that. She made a good chunk of change making this movie, mm-hmm. which, good for fucking her. All right, who could have been better? Mae West? <laughs> big yeah. name but she wanted to rewrite the dialogue yeah no and if you know anything about billy <laughs> fuck off <laughs> that's not fucking happening gotta try and do his his polish german accent norma shearer she was a very famous silent film star she actually found the film distasteful and refused to come out of retirement for it mm. mary pickford wilder and Brackett actually pitched mary pickford at pick fair her little artist retreat and getaway um mm. Halfway through the pitch, she looked mortified. 
Oh, yeah. She was offended by it. And at that point, they looked at her and were like, you know what? We're very sorry. And they left. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those things where they were like, we just got this really great idea. Oh, no. Oh, no. We're very sorry for wasting your time. <laughs> Some people do not have, a, and and it definitely runs rampant in Hollywood. They do not have any self-awareness. They don't have any self-awareness, but also like, especially for these actresses in that silent era, and we know there was rampant abuse, who knows how much trauma this brought up for some of them. Mm-hmm. And then finally, who could have been better? Pola Negri. She was a very famous silent star, but she had a thick Polish accent. Wilder loved her. I, I'm assuming from his days back in Poland and Germany, seeing films and making films. But because it was such a dialogue heavy role, he was like, we can't do it. But he really wanted to cast her. And that leads us to Eric von Stroheim playing Max von Merling. Now, are you ready for how meta this one gets? Because oh. if you thought Gloria Swanson was meta, this ups it by five times. I mean, I didn't think it was meta, so... <laughs> Eric von Stroheim was an Austrian actor and director whose look got him in a role as a bespectacled German many a time in films. However, he was a big fucking deal as a director and also had a penchant for directing nearly unreleasable films due to their length. His film Greed was originally... 42 reels in total and had a running time of seven hours long. Uh, the studio eventually cut it down to 10 reels. And the wedding march was so long that even unfinished, he didn't finish it. It had to be released as two separate films. Wow. Yeah, it was a lot. And also, Eric von Stroheim directed Gloria Swanson in the film Queen Kelly in 1932. The clips of which are used in Norma and Joe's screening room scene. Right. <laughs> yes, Eric von Stroheim, Max von Merling. Billy loved Stroheim's work while he was in Germany and was totally playing at that nod by casting him in this role. And so because of that, what do we think of Eric von Stroheim in this film? Oh, he's great. I mean, he's like the right amount of like, like there's a lurch. <laughs> like aspect to him but also like no he's madly in love with with norma there's so much wrapped up in there oh yeah it's great for a secondary character there are so many layers wrapped up in what he's doing and he gets it mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting because there are you know, he could have cast other directors in that role and they wouldn't have had it but because stroheim was also an actor mm -hmm. He understood the levels that he needed to build up with this role. And like just between, yes, he's madly in love with Norma. Yes, he's also super protective, but also he's resigned and sad. And he like empathizes with Joe in some moments where like there's moments where he's with Joe and he's like, yeah, I get it. It's fucking weird. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> um, there, There's just so much going on with him. And then again, him doing the shot at the end of the movie is just as heartbreaking as watching Norma. Mm -hmm. And even then, you also see that he's doing it not because he wants her to have this moment, maybe a little, but it's really more that's like, this is the only way she'll come down and go. This is the only way we can end this the way it has to end. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, oh my God, dude, <laughs> what, a, what a heartbreaking life you've led. 
He's fascinating. He's very, very good. Well, Stroheim was never very big on his participation in this movie. He referred to the performance as, quote, that butler role. Also true to his character, he refused to attend the Oscars while he was in Paris. He declared his nomination should have been for Best Actor. Mm. (laughs) He was a spiky German dude. Oh, yeah. However, he apparently collaborated a lot with Billy. He offered suggestions and not in a way that was like imposing, but Billy actually used. Mm Mm-hmm. It was Stroheim's idea to use the footage from Queen Kelly and to have Max write all of Norma's fan mail, which is such a huge twist. Mm -hmm. Stroheim, he was a big part of the success of the movie. And even if he, you know, true to his public form, was a spiky, grumpy dude, he really did, I think, enjoy making the film. Mm -hmm. Um, However, he could not drive. And that's a little bit of a problem because, you know, he's a chauffeur and butler. So for any scenes driving, the car was towed by another car or, in the case of them pulling up to the Paramount gates, pulled by a rope by off-camera grips. <laughs> per Wilder, despite all that, he still managed to hit the gates. He had no coordination. <laughs> uh, apparently, that might have been an exaggeration because Billy likes to tell stories, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then one other fun little note on Queen Kelly. Swanson actually produced Queen Kelly. That was her trying to break away from Paramount Studios and begin to maybe produce her own work. Mm-hmm. However, Stroheim, because he can't make a releasable movie, doubled the budget without any end to filming in sight because he just kept adding shit. So she had to fire him. Mm-hmm. And despite that, they still had an okay working relationship on this movie. Uh, what a weird German dude. Mm-hmm. And then finally, playing Betty Schaefer, we have Nancy. Olsen. Before this, she was in a movie called Canadian Pacific. She was 21 when they made this movie. Mm. So this was like a very early role. After this, she was in the film's Union Station, Submarine Command, So Big, The Boy from Oklahoma, did a ton of television, was in Pollyanna, The Absent-Minded Professor, and Son of Flubber, and made a cameo in 1997's Flubber. Mm. What do we think of Nancy Olsen in this movie? Oh, she's she's great. Like, she's... She's doing a lot in those scenes because she's being really plucky. She is. She's not the typical ingenue at all Mm -hmm. in a good way. And the only moment where it feels a little hammy is when she gets to that house and she's terrified. But honestly, she would be terrified. Oh, yeah. Especially after Joe's just giving her this riot act of all these terrible things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she she brings a lot to a small role. And really helps solidify this subplot that is also pretty important to Joe's character. Without her, Joe's got nothing going on. That's very true. Yeah. If you don't have her, this movie falls apart real fast. It does unless there's a huge overhaul of the script, right? Well, yes. It's a completely different movie at that point. She also is this really great. Like She is the last toe he has in the real world. Mm Mm-hmm. And once he drives her away, that's it. And she just does a great job of feeling like somebody with a dream. And not in a naive way, because, I mean, the first time we see her, she is ready to rip his script to shreds. Mm-hmm. And does so in his face. Yep. Hello, Mr. Sheldrake. Hello. On that basis loaded, I covered it with a two-page synopsis. Thank you. But I wouldn't bother. What's wrong with it? It's from hunger. Nothing for lad? Well, it was just a rehash of something that wasn't very good to begin with. I'm sure you'll be glad to meet Mr. Gillis. He wrote it. 
This is Miss Kramer. The name is Schaefer. Betty Schaefer. Right now, I wish I could crawl in a hole and pull it in after me. If I could be of any help. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Gillis, but I just didn't think it was any good. I found it flat and trite. Exactly what kind of material do you recommend? James Joyce? Dostoevsky? I just think that picture should say a little something. Oh, one of the message kids. Just a story won't do. You'd have turned down Gone with the Wind. No, that was me. I said, who wants to see a Civil War picture? Which I'm like, god damn. It is very impressive. And that is it for our main actors. Okay. And that will lead us to our pawns. Random people of note. Playing Sheldrake, the producer, Fred Clark. He's a recognizable character actor who courted the market in the 50s and 60s as the dowered, ill-tempered guy you love to hate. He's a dude you've seen in so many movies. He was like oh, sure. anti-mame and how to marry a millionaire and all sorts of crap. Mm. Playing Artie Green, Betty's boyfriend, a very young Jack Webb, the creator and star of Dragnet. <laughs> yeah, that's Sergeant Joe Friday playing wow. Artie Green. Okay. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, he's going to play a cop. And then I didn't even think about it and looking at the credit. And I was like, wait, that was Joe Friday? <laughs> it was 1949, 10 years later but until he made Dragnet. So he got, he got a little scrunchier and copier later on. Uh, playing the Undertaker that comes in with the chimp coffin. Mm. Franklin Farnham, a vaudeville actor who went to star in 660 movies. He appeared in eight Best Picture winners, nine Best Picture nominees, and he was an uncredited office worker in The Apartment. Mm. Larry J. Blake playing the first finance man. He was the first ever U.S. actor to play Adolf Hitler on screen in The Road Back. It was cut originally to appease German censors, but after 1939 and the invasion of Poland, they reinstated his role for a re-release. Playing Cecil B. DeMille, Cecil B. DeMille, one of the greatest directors and producers of all time. He is a legend of early Hollywood, along with Louis B. Mayer, Goldwyn. He's one of the big fucking deal names. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't sure. If that was him, so like while we were watching, I was like, "Is is that actually him?" Oh, oh, it is. Okay. And they are filming on his set. <laughs> wow. Because uh, he was so intimately tied to many of the actors that are in this movie, mm-hmm. he was instrumental in giving them leads, including Gloria Swanson. And so I I think Billy, if he had gone with somebody who had worked with Louis B. Mayer, he probably would have tried to cast Louis B. Mayer. Mm. But um, we'll get into some of the trivia later. The relationship between Swanson and DeMille was so interesting and unique that I think it just made the perfect combination. Mm. Now, DeMille was not going to do this for cheap. Of course not. Because he's a studio man. He knows what's up. He agreed to do the cameo for $10,000, which is $125,000 in today's money, and a brand new Cadillac. When Wilder came back to Cecil B. DeMille and said, I need a close-up shot of you, DeMille demanded another (laughs) $10,000. To give you some scope on this, Mm -hmm. Gloria Swanson's salary was $50,000 for this movie. Wow. Plus $5,000 for any week over schedule. So she, I mean, she did great. She got lots of money in her time for this movie. Sure. Cecil B. DeMille got 40% of that for the five minutes he is in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he is a much bigger deal than her. So he was not going to show up unless they were going to pay him. <laughs> and they did. 
and it worked. Like it's it is a great cameo that serves the plot so well. And the instant relationship that you can see both Gloria Swanson and Cecil B. DeMille have makes that scene light up even more. Mm-hmm. Because if it was just another actress, it would just be an actress next to old studio dude. But they have a chemistry that you just can't replicate. <laughs> so Cecil B. DeMille made quite a bit of money for a very small performance. Yeah. Then we have Hedda Hopper playing Hedda Hopper. She's barely in the movie. She's right there at the end. But she was a silent and old film actress for many years before starting a gossip column in 1936. And then she rivaled with Luella Parsons. Mm. Hedda Hopper would then go on to play herself in movies and TV shows because she was a Hollywood staple. Wilder was actually friends with Luella Parsons. He was not as friendly with Hedda Hopper. Mm. So he wanted both to appear. He wanted them to fight each other for the story at the end of the film, which, holy shit, that would have been great. Mm. But Luella Parsons knew Hopper was a former actress, and she said, she will run me right off the screen. I'm not going to do it. Okay. Because Luella Parsons was not an actress. But had Wilder gotten his way, oh, what a great bit that would have been. You've got this woman completely deteriorated and just murdered a man. And there's Hedda Hopper and Luella Parsons battling for the story. Mm. Because that's what Hollywood would do. Then you have the Waxworks playing bridge. First up, Buster Keaton. The general, the navigator, Sherlock Jr., college, Steamboat Bill Jr., he created Hollywood stunt work and special effects. He is studied extensively by many film creators, including former uh, friend of the show Jackie Chan. He's a big fucking deal. Just just a little bit. And uh, being a silent film star, he only has two lines in this whole scene. Pass. <laughs> Buster Keaton was actually an incredibly good bridge player and highly in demand at Hollywood bridge parties. He was self-taught because of fucking course he was. He learned everything on his own. Uh, He spent hours with instruction manuals and newspaper clippings and played all four hands simultaneously until he became a bridge expert. Uh, Then we have Anna Q. Nielsen playing herself. She was a Swedish immigrant who was chosen as the most beautiful woman in the U.S. in 1907. Mm. She had a long career in silent film and was the most popular actress in Hollywood as of 1926. But she was thrown from a horse in 1928 and fractured her thigh, and that effectively ended her film career. That's dumb. And she is the, the other lady playing bridge. And finally, the stentorian British man at the table is H.B. Warner. He is not a Warner brother. Uh, he was a British character actor who played the original Jesus Christ in DeMille's King of Kings in 1927 and mm. Mr. Gower in It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. He also played the leading man opposite Gloria Swanson in 1923's silent film Zaza. So Zaza. Silent movies, man. Weird stuff. Who could have been better? William Haynes was another silent film star. His career had ended after his homosexuality was discovered by the press, which is sad and terrible mm-hmm. and shouldn't it shouldn't have ever been a thing. But he went on to become an interior decorator and he was so happy with that life, he didn't want to make a return to Hollywood at all. Oh, good for him. He was just like, you know what? I dealt with that bullshit. I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. I don't want to go through that ringer again. (laughs) Then we have Ray Evans and Jay Livingston playing themselves at one point in the movie. These gentlemen wrote the songs Silver Bells, K Sarah Sarah, Mona Lisa, Buttons and Bows, and the theme songs to Mr. Ed and Bonanza. Okay. 
<laughs> They're just in the movie. All these fucking Hollywood people are in the movie. Ruth Clifford, who plays Sheldrake's secretary, she was the former voice of Minnie Mouse and Daisy Duck. Oh, okay. Julia Fay playing Hisham, she was a mistress and protege of Cecil B. DeMille. She was not very known for her acting ability, but she had wit and charm for days and appeared in almost all of his films. Jack Warden playing a party guest, that's the guy from Shampoo and The Verdict that we've talked about and loved oh, on this wow. show as okay. a supporting actor. Uh, this is one of his earliest uncredited film roles. And finally, Henry Wilcoxon playing an actor on the Samson and Delilah set. He was another mentor of DeMille, almost a surrogate son. Uh, he played Mark Antony in DeMille's 1934 Cleopatra and was in Samson and Delilah, which mm. they are showing the set of in the movie. Oh, okay, cool. Finally, a which Arpon could have been better. Oh, jeez. Billy Wilder wanted Hedy Lamar to show up in a cameo at the DeMille set. Oh, okay. Because Hedy Lamar was playing Delilah in Samson and Delilah. Okay. However, DeMille went to bat for his actress mm -hmm. and said she gets paid $25,000 for this cameo, about $300,000. She gets paid that for the privilege of you getting to show her in this movie. Mm. And uh, Billy was like, now nah, we're good. <laughs> Are you paying you twenty? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is our puns. Now we have awards. This movie was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Ah, very nice. It won three. Oh, that's less nice. It won Best Writing, Story, and Screenplay. Okay. It won Best Art Set Decoration for Black and White. Okay. And it won Best Music Score, Drama, or Comedy. I'm good with all of those. I mean, I don't have a lot of context, but okay. The score is incredible. Creepy as fuck, too. It is creepy. Nominated Best Actor, William Holden. He lost to Jose Ferrer for Cyrano de Bergerac. Also nominated that year, Spencer Tracy for Father of the Bride, James Stewart for Harvey. Mm. Then nominated for Best Actress, Gloria Swanson. Judy Holiday won for Born Yesterday. Anne Baxter and Betty Davis were nominated for All About Eve. It is very widely believed that Swanson and Davis split the ticket as the elder actresses, allowing Judy Holiday to win. That makes sense. Yep. Best Supporting Actor, Eric Von Stroheim. George Sanders won for All About Eve. Best Supporting Actress, Nancy Olsen got nominated. Oh, okay. Best Director category was a big fucking year. Billy Wilder was nominated but lost to Joseph L. Mankiewicz for All About Eve. He also did Guys and Dolls earlier. But also this same year was Carol Reads the Third Man, which is a masterpiece. George Cukor's Born Yesterday and John Huston for The Asphalt Jungle. That's a stacked category. It lost Best Cinematography to The Third Man. It lost Best Editing. And it lost Best Picture to All About Eve, which was the big winner for 1950. Mm, yeah. And it's a movie that at some point we're going to have to watch. But we're talking about Billy. And that leads us to trivia. Trivia. Costume designer Edith Head, she's back again, considered this film one of her toughest challenges. She worked with Gloria Swanson specifically on Norma's wardrobe because she knew Swanson would have a better idea of what women at the time wore then and what they would wear now. Hmm. In other words, the entire style was grandly expensive and slightly out of date. Yeah, that makes sense. To create the mood lighting, cinematographer John F. Seitz would sprinkle dust in the air to diffuse the light. He used that same technique for double indemnity. So we still got that smoky silver dust in the air. 
Also, for the New Year's Eve party dance, he did use a dance doll. Okay. So they could go around the room. It was the same technique he used in 1921 to shoot Valentino dancing in the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Makeup designer Wally Westmore wanted to age up Gloria Swanson, thinking her face belied her age. Which is a compliment. That's a very nice thing. You look way younger than what this character is. But Gloria Swanson argued that Norma would have been obsessed with her appearance. Yeah. And they cannot change her natural face look. She can act like it's it's falling apart, but they don't need to change it. She would be making herself up constantly. Yeah, like regardless it's it's regardless of what she looks like, it's not it's not good enough. Like it's it's all fading fast. So Westmore and Wilder took that point and they instead used makeup to make William Holden look younger. Okay. Than he really looks, which he does. He looks very dapper in this movie, and that's not the William Holden. He does look dapper. I don't think he looks younger. A little bit. It's it's because they've taken off the craggy. Cuz William Holden's always been a little craggy. But it 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 works for me. I bought it. Uh, Set designer Hans Dreyer had been the interior designer for homes of several former silent stars like B.B. Daniels and uh, Pola Negri. Mm -hmm. And so they brought him in to design Norma's house. When the crew asked Billy how he planned to shoot the burial of Norma's monkey, he simply replied, you know, the usual monkey funeral sequence. I love him. I love him so much. Uh, Cecil B. DeMille's set is very real. They were filming that sequence on the set for Samson and Delilah. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, when the Paramount Garden instructs Norma and Joe to meet DeMille on stage 18, that is the DeMille stage. Oh, cool. It is now known as the Star Trek stage because it was the main shooting location for all of the original Star Trek movies and some TV sequences. Very cool. The TV offices for Star Trek are across the street at stages 8 and 9, and just below there is where Betty Schaefer's office is in the film. Cool. So that those, those offices are now art studios and stuff for Star Trek. The drugstore where Joe meets up with old industry friends is Schwab's, which was an actual soda fountain and pharmacy at Sunset and Crescent Heights. It was a legendary hangout for stars and regulars, but it was torn down in 1988 for a movie theater and a shopping center because we can't keep nice things. The Desmond Mansion was not actually on Sunset Boulevard. It was at 641 South Irving Boulevard at Crenshaw and Irving. It was built in 1924 by William Jenkins for $250,000 which is a $4.3 million house in today's money. It's a Mm. big fucking house. Oh, yeah. Then Jean-Paul Getty was the next owner, buying it for his second wife, and she got it in the divorce and rented it for the filming. (laughs) The swimming pool was actually built and added for the film, but it was a prop piece and could not circulate water. Oh, okay. So she kept it, but she literally, it was just a showpiece. Okay. They would use the empty pool for Rebel Without a Cause in 1955, and the mansion was eventually torn down in 1957, and an office for Getty Oil was built in its place, which is still there today. Cool. Norma's bed is actually pretty famous. It was owned mm. by French actress and singer Gabby Daly. Universal purchased it when she died in 1920, and it was most notably used in The Phantom of the Opera in 1925. Oh, okay. The mention of the painting of wild horses being given to Norma Desmond by some Nevada Chamber of Commerce was a nod to silent film actress Clara Bow. Her husband, Rex Bell, was a B-movie Western star who became president of the Nevada Chamber of Commerce and then the lieutenant governor of Nevada. 
references within references within references. Yeah. So many. Rudy's shoeshine stand where Joe parks his car was inspired by Oscar Smith's shoeshine stand at the old Paramount Studios, which was a popular hangout for gossip and chats when Billy started working there. Hmm. According to Cameron Crowe, past friend of the show Cameron Crowe, who shadowed Billy Wilder while he was training to be a director, a typical day in Billy's office would consist of Wilder getting tons and tons of phone calls requesting to remake Sunset Boulevard, to which Billy responded that he didn't own the rights and then immediately hanging up. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, two lawsuits were filed during the years claiming the script was plagiarized. Both suits were actually dismissed. They were never settled. So this was this was all Billy and Charles Brackett's idea. Let's there's no crossways about it. (laughs) Despite Norma getting overcome with nostalgia and emotion at the L.A. Paramount Studios, her final films with the studio that is, Gloria Swanson's, were actually filmed at the Astoria Queens facility in New York. At one point, Cecil B. DeMille is informed that Gordon Cole has been trying to reach you, Gordon Cole being a random studio assistant. Gordon Cole was an actual person in Cecil B. DeMille's art department for Samson and Delilah. They just used that guy's name. Mm. However, David Lynch, who is an avid fan of this film and its themes, named his Twin Peaks character FBI Bureau Chief Gordon Cole. <laughs> nice. I can't promise anything. Excuse me, I'm looking for a Sheriff Harry S. Truman. You found him. Sheriff. Excuse me, I'm looking for a Sheriff Harry S. Truman. That's me. Federal Bureau of Investigation Regional Bureau Chief Gordon Cole. That's a real mouthful, but I can't hear myself anyway. I'm Agent Cooper's supervisor. Well, pleasure to meet you. Can I speak with you a moment? Sure. Donna. Wait here. Also, Twin Peaks has two characters named Chester Desmond and Norma Jennings. Ah, okay. And more importantly, Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive feature very similar themes and nods to this film. And as I think about it, that makes David Lynch make a fuck ton more sense. The drama, the descent, the madness of this movie and exploring how someone can get so caught up in their mind. I was like, oh, shit. Lynch makes a fuck ton more sense to me after putting that together. If he loves this movie, yeah, David Lynch actually makes a little bit of sense for once in his fucking life. Yeah, a little bit. I understand the melodrama a lot more now. The statuette on the table at Artie Green's New Year's party is a model of Dagon, the Philistine god. This is the same as the larger version that Samson brings down in Samson and Delilah, the movie DeMille was filming while Norma visits. Ah. In a very great composer moment, gotta give nods to our composers, when Max tells Norma the cameras have arrived, Franz Waxman quotes Strauss's The Dance of the Seven Veils, an opera about Salome. (laughs) They use that same musical quote again as she comes down the stairs, which then slowly turns into Waxman's reinterpretation and film theme. Cool. Ah. That score is doing a whole lot, man. It's very good. At one point, Joe at the party is introduced as a former Black Dahlia suspect. Oh, yeah. Obviously, this is a reference to the Black Dahlia murder, but that happened in 1947. Mm. This was a very fresh story at the time of this movie's release. You know, they were filming this in 1949. It came out in 1950. It had pretty much just happened, and it was still very fresh and had not been solved. Mm, yeah. 
Joe being a Black Dahlia suspect is like, oh, and had somebody like Montgomery Clift played him, would have played into that darkness even more. Oh, sure. DeMille's pet name for Gloria Swanson was Young Fellow because she was braver than any man he had ever met. Oh, that's cool. Brackett and Wilder included the greeting when DeMille greets Norma at the door of the soundstage. He greets her as Young Fellow. Hmm. Well, hello, young fella. Hello, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> it's good to see you. The last time I saw you was someplace very gay. I remember waving to you. I was uh, dancing on a table. <laughs> a lot of people were. Lindbergh had just landed in Paris. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Which is a beautiful little nod and movie moment. And again, yeah. if you don't put those two together, you can't get a moment as convincing as that. Because they had a lot of admiration for each other. They really did. That's cool. And finally, when filming started for this movie, William Holden was 31 and Gloria Swanson was 50, the same age as Norma in the script. Hmm. Despite them having a 19-year age gap, Holden died two years before Swanson, he being 63, she being 84. Just like the movie, she outlived him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. And that leads us... To ratings for every film, we have a specific rating system for this movie. Oh, there's so many choices we could go with, right? Are yeah, we gonna go with chimp coffins? No, <laughs> that feels wrong, like, and not in a fun way. Broken down convertibles, mm. close ups from Mr. DeMille. How many close ups? Okay. Okay. I can get on board with that. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. It's my movie. I'm going to go first. I was very prepared to just go perfect because I was still left flabbergasted and charmed by this movie. But you've made some really excellent points on the yes! structure <laughs> and and some of the stuff. Hey, I got to give credit where credit's due. There, There's some issues that prevent this movie from being as good as it could be. I don't ever go into these being like, I'm ready to shit on a movie. Okay. I may have done that like once, but like, I really do like try to pay attention and be like, okay, do I like it just on its own on its merit? What's all the other shit? Like when we talk through these things and it's just like, Hey, I want to like things, but it's very rare that I'm like, I would change nothing. And this is a perfect movie and I want to watch it tomorrow. Thank you. Like, it just doesn't happen very often. Well, it, it helps me for as a person who, like, I've last watched this probably when I was in high school or college. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's been a while. I'm glad sure. to get a better perspective on it. I'm still going to go four and a half. Okay. I can't knock it down that far just because so many of those moments just rang so perfectly. And again, you get that last scene and it just leaves you with this absolute sublime moment mm-hmm. to walk off on. And I'm just like, I recognize all of that. And yet, in the moment, I didn't care at all. Yeah. Some people believe this is the best movie ever made about Hollywood. I'm hard-pressed to think of another. It's definitely up there. And it's also one of the most honest 
at the time it was a brutal takedown. I don't know that it's as much a brutal takedown anymore, but it's very open and honest about how the sausage gets made. Sure. And it's refreshing to watch a movie be willing to do that so far back and do it with a ton of humor and also a ton of creepiness. Oh, sure. And then you just get, you know, you get Gloria Swanson and you get Billy doing all these amazing things and you get all these fun little moments with everybody. It's a must see. It's a classic movie. It's not Mm -hmm. quite perfect, but it's four and a half to me. How many close ups are you going to give it? Mm, I think this is a four. Okay. For me, the script, I have some issues with the script. I just do. I need better conviction or and or resolve for Joe. You know, we like I'm fine with him dying. I'm fine with him being a dirtbag, but like commit. <laughs> yeah, I, I I get that. But like the story, I still like the overall story, and I think the direction is fabulous. And Gloria Swanson is amazing. So it's a four. So let's go from Hollywood, maybe one of Billy's best, mm. to one of Billy's most underrated. Okay, a movie about prisoners of war. That is also a comedy? Okay. We are going to watch Stalag 17. Oh, okay. Another movie I saw a long time ago. I remember being very entertained and also very intrigued. I am curious to see how this one holds up. A World War II movie with bits, Diana. Oh, with bits. Well, I've never seen this and I had never heard of it until you said this is the list of movies we're watching. Okay. But it goes it goes up on one of Billy's best, so we gotta watch it. Okay. We'll watch it. So until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.